You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Good to see so many of you here. There's an experiment going on this weekend uh, at the Marshall House, and it's still going on at least for the next 12 hours and one minute. Here's the experiment. Last Tuesday, uh, Mandy hopped on a plane to spend some time with her mom and head to Texas. And so the experiment is, can I keep them alive? The three kids... (laughs) that I have been entrusted with. By the way, if you're a dad and, and your wife leaves, it's not called babysitting. This is called parenting. Just a quick little PSA there. Oh, that wasn't a, sure, we can, we can go there. It's an applause line, I guess. So um, no, thankfully, um, they're doing okay. The dogs are doing okay. The yard got mowed. We're hanging in there. Um, but no, life is better with Mandy completely. Uh, she was streaming this morning and she's going to kill me because I embarrassed her by mentioning her name. So 10.50 a.m. Her plane lands in Cleveland at 10.50 tonight. So guys, we're inside of 12 hours. <laughs> I can make it. So in all seriousness, though, uh, it's caused me to think a little bit about dependence, okay? It's shown me how dependent I am. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I've just ordered a lot of pizza and bought donuts. Um, but dependence is not something that we like <clears throat> as people, We don't like being dependent. Dependence is uncomfortable. Whether that's true in your marriage, in your life, I think it's also true spiritually. Dependence is an uncomfortable position. Dependence undermines my authority. Dependence undercuts my ability. Dependence undoes my autonomy. (laughs) In our pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of a world, we live with these phrases like, I should know better, I should be able to do this, I should be able to figure this stuff out. It's true of laundry, but it's also true of pain in our life. What direction should we go spiritually? What choice should we make? We should be able to figure this out, right? It shouldn't be this hard. (laughs) Dependence can sometimes be a weakness, but the truth is our own tuition Our own experience and God's word all conspire to show us that dependence is not a weakness. Dependence is actually, according to Jesus, our greatest strength. So, this morning starts this four-week series on the Holy Spirit. And here's the idea. I think the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is one of the most undertaught, misapplied doctrines in the Christian faith. And I say the word Holy Spirit and automatically images start coming to your mind. Like, is this Casper the Friendly Ghost? Is this like Jiminy Cricket, this nice but nagging little conscience? The angel on Yosemite Sam's shoulder? Is it Yoda in the bog encouraging Luke to use the force? Is it just the wind kind of blowing leaves around? And so here's what happens. Since we don't know how to think about the Holy Spirit, we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. And so maybe this is your experience, regardless of how long you've been attending church or been following Jesus or your spiritual story. What happens is most of us accept the Holy Spirit in theory, but deny him in practice. 
And so we end up with a Christian life that feels somehow less than what it should be and is ultimately less than what Jesus promised it could be. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to study what God's Word says about the Holy Spirit and what He means for us. And this morning, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit actually frees us to live a very meaningful Christian life. It's right after Easter. And so the Holy Spirit shows up very prominently in the upper room, and that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to throw the car in reverse and get back into the upper room of John 14, just right before Easter, because Jesus says some startling things that we're going to turn our attention to. But before we get into that today, I want to let you know how we're going to approach this. And so um, for these next four weeks, we're going to be laser focused on kind of living in two worlds. First emphasis, or the first point we're going to really drive at, is we're going to be deeply biblical. Now, if, if North Canton Chapel is your home and you're comfortable around here, that statement probably doesn't surprise you. Um, but for those of you who are considering church, maybe this is your second time here, um, I feel the need to be very open and honest with you about um, our commitment to God's Word. Um, so I just think that's just best practice. So we prioritize God's Word as the source of truth as a church, and hopefully you do that individually on your own. Um, the reason being is because I don't know much about myself, but God's Word knows a lot more about me than I do. But the commitment to biblicism isn't just because we're a church and because churches and the Bible, they sort of go together. I think it's actually a little bit more than that. Um, I don't know how to make sense of our world. Like, just a little confession there. Sorry if that disappoints you. Some of you were like, yeah, I know. <laughs> but I believe that God's word also helps us make sense not just of ourselves or of God or of Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but God's word helps us make sense of our world. And so we're going to sink our study deeply into God's word in these next four weeks. But the second commitment that we're really going to push toward, too, is we're also going to be not just deeply biblical, but profoundly practical. So again, that probably shouldn't surprise you if North Canton Chapel is your home church, but let me just say this. I have zero interest in occupying a 40-minute spot on your Sunday morning with merely interesting facts. You can go to Wikipedia, you can go to Google, you can read a book about that. <laughs> Our job here as a church when we gather to worship is to take the unchanging truth of God's word in a very changing culture and say, okay, God, what do I do with this? This has to matter in my life. You know, just one is a dusty book on the shelf. Show me what to do with it. And so we're going to live in between these two worlds of being deeply biblical, deeply theological, and also profoundly practical. So before we go any further, though, I want to name attention. Um, everybody in this room, myself included, you have a natural bent. Okay? You probably drift one of two ways, and they sound like this. Some of you are saying, well, theology, that's for the stuffy intellectual who's buried in the library or locked in the ivory tower. And there's some truth to that, okay? Because unless you're looking to get practical with theology, you will become irrelevant, not just to your world, but to yourself. And you'll actually dishonor God because you'll have truth that you've never applied. And so there is this, like, get me toward the center. But then there's this other side or this other bent that says, ah, I don't know, like, just give me the theology. I'll let the practicality part figure itself out. And there's a problem with that side, too, because we don't want to rush to take doctrine into our lives without really contemplating what God's Word actually says. And so 
We want to live with both of these things kind of in tension with each other, but I'm going to ask you to consider something, no matter which bent you fall on. I think it's a horribly false dichotomy (laughs) to say it's either going to be this or it's going to be this. I want preaching this way or this way. I think it's very unhelpful. I think it's a false dichotomy, and so our job is to unite these two things. Speaking in my life, and maybe you're this way, the things that matter most to me are deeply biblical, deeply theological, and profoundly practical. They're both. Good theology wants to be expressed. It wants to come out. It wants to bear in my life. Bad theology doesn't. It's only a good test of good theology. But then also, like practicality, like I don't want just like the flavor of the month, kind of like spiritual thing, fortune cookie thing. I want something that lasts, that's rooted, that's deep. And so this tension, we're going to try and bring together these next four weeks. We do our teaching series in a lot of ways. We do book studies, which we do once a year in a giant way, which we're going to be doing this summer. And from time to time, we do these little topical studies. This one is profoundly theological. We're just going to take a look at the Holy Spirit. Last word before we dive in. Good preaching seeks to close the gap between those two extremes. We have a team of teaching pastors here, and our job as preachers of the gospel who use the word of God is to unite these two extremes so that you don't see them as so disparately. You see theology and practicality coming together. So all that's introduction. That's where we're going to go in this series, and that's where we're going this morning. So with that commitment in place, let's get into these statements that Jesus makes. You can get to John 14 if you like, or you can follow along on the screens behind me. So before we get there, we, get up, we need to understand what's just happened, okay? Now, Jesus is in the upper room. He's hosting dinner with his disciples. This is just right before the crucifixion, and so right before Easter. And there's still dust settling in the room. The disciples' toes are still wet with water from when Jesus washed their feet, Jesus turned to Judas and he said, do it quickly. And Judas gets up and leaves the room. And then he gestures to Peter and he says, you, rock star, you're going to deny me in public three times. (laughs) This is the situational context into which Jesus is about to drop this theological bombshell. So all of these 11 guys that are now left in the room can get the sense that something's about to happen. This three-year journey with Jesus is just about to come off the rails. Something is going to wake up. And then Jesus makes this impossible high bar statement that had to put these 11 men over the edge. And all of that brings us to John 14, verse 15. Here it is. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. As if to say, guys, we've had a really good run. These last four years, or last three years have been great. So glad you're my disciples. But here's the thing, I'm leaving, and once I'm gone, you will show whether you're for real or not by what you, if you do what I actually taught you to do. There's no like, Jesus, we love you, and I want my life on my terms. He says, we're done with that. And just so you know, that's a principle that's not limited to these 11 guys in this room. This cascades down through the centuries to find us. The principle at the crux of all of this is affection for Christ is shown or revealed in obedience to Christ. But here's the question. Jesus is about to leave, and the Christian life is really super hard. 
Anybody with me in that this morning? So much easier said than done. Love your neighbor. Have fun, 2020. <laughs> Pray for your enemy. <laughs> this is hard to live the Christian life. And so these guys in this room are going, you're leaving? Are you serious? Thanks for dropping us in the middle of the wilderness without a compass, Jesus. And the painful question hanging in the air is, Jesus, of course we love you, but if you're going to tie our love for you to obedience, how are we going to obey you if you're not even around to show us what to do anymore? I've wondered that. After three years of these guys walking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, being led by him personally, any spiritual question you've ever wanted to ask you could ask Jesus and he'd give you the answer. Could you imagine what that would be like? And Jesus says, well, I'm leaving. And by the way, you still got to follow me. And then as if reading their minds, Jesus says, well, great question, guys. Glad you asked. Here's the answer. Verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So a few quick things just to unpack this together. Jesus identifies the Holy Spirit as another helper. Your translation might say counselor. This is somebody who comes alongside you and influences your thinking, directs your decision making. But then secondly, he says the Holy Spirit will stay forever. That should be really reassuring for us. Especially when Jesus said, I'm leaving. But the Holy Spirit will stay forever. Thirdly, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come from the Father. Now that has one idea in mind, authority. This isn't just some feeling. The Holy Spirit has authority. Fourthly, he says the world won't recognize him. Now that's a bit of a downer, but here's what that means. The Holy Spirit relates to unbelievers and believers very differently. We're going to come back to this in a minute because Jesus explodes this. But then the last thing he says is, you will recognize him because he's been with you and will be what? In you. Who? Okay, now these guys are first century Old Testament reading Jewish men. They knew about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was on Moses. The Holy Spirit was with David. But now Jesus says something else all completely different. He says the Holy Spirit of God, this sea-splitting pillar of fire, will reside where? Not on, not with, not around, but in. Oh. And as the words fall out of Jesus' mouth and into their ears, you know they just went, Jesus, hang on. <laughs> You're not making any sense. Like you're leaving, and what now? Mm. You can't blame them. This sounds almost unbelievable. Here's the crux of what Jesus is saying. If you love me, you're going to obey me. So love for Christ is measured by obedience to Christ. And then obedience to Christ is dependent upon who Christ will send. You can't obey Christ without the Holy Spirit. Hmm. You see how he's getting some theological ducks in a row that we've got to get our heads around. But let's slide down a few verses because Jesus makes a second startling statement and it's in verse 25. Here's what he says. Chapter 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Well, that's a comfort. And then verse 27. Peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Do you see the goodness of Jesus in here? You see how he's ramping up again? He's going to do two things. He's going to teach you. He's going to guide you. He's going to remind you of these things that Jesus has already said. Hold on to that idea because we're going to come back to it in a minute. And then without any gap in his thoughts, he goes, by the way, I'm going to give you peace. Do you think there's any connection between those two ideas? That the Holy Spirit's job is to remind you what Jesus said and you're going to have peace. Do you think those two ideas are connected at all? But then let's not miss that phrase right in the middle of verse 27 where he says, I'm going to give you peace, but it's not going to be peace the way the world gives peace. I'm going to give it to you differently. Somehow the Christian's peace is different than the peace of the world. So it's worth backing up and asking, guys, how does the world give peace? North Canton Chapel, think about this. What is the world's recipe for peace? How, does, how do you achieve peace? What does it mean? Why is peace important? How would the world answer that question? Now, we talked about this last week with Easter. It doesn't take a theologian to look around and say that our world has problems, right? Is this new news to anybody? That our world is a little jacked up right now? And the whole point of the audacity of the Christian message is when you look around and say, well, yeah, the world has problems, and I'm saying that in all of this vast panoply of potential problem solvers, one matters, and his name is Jesus. Sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution, period. That's the audacity of the Christian message when it comes to rescue. And now Jesus is now extending that to say peace. You can get peace a lot of ways, right? You can get peace when everybody believes what you believe. How's that working out? You can get peace when you fire up. You can get peace when you just dismiss yourself and bury your head in the sand. All those things can give you peace for a measure of time. Do they work? No. Jesus says, I will be peace. I will give you peace, not like the world gives it to you. Guys, that is an audacious claim. To say the only way you're going to experience peace in this world is through Jesus. That is a very bold statement. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying that the pathway to your peace runs through the power of my word. And then just to tighten the screws on us right now, you'll never get that without complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Because that's the Holy Spirit's job. Everything that I was when I was with you, he will be in my absence. Everything that I gave you when I was here, he will give you when he comes. Everything that you need to be, North Canton Chapel, to be faithful to God in 2021 and beyond is bound up in him. So if verse 15 caused their eyebrows to raise, this one, their jaws just drop. But there's a third startling statement that Jesus makes. And this is probably the most startling of all. If his first statement raises their eyebrows, the second statement drops their jaws, this third statement blows their minds. Take a look in chapter 16, verse 7. We're going to read all of this right up front because what Jesus does here is absolutely remarkable. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 16, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? I'm going to come back to that. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, now there's going to be two things. Watch him. Here's the first one. 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, there's the second, into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, there's a lot going on here, so let's kind of pick this apart for a couple of minutes. First things first. The most startling thing to me is that Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. <laughs> like, what? Think for a second, okay? If God, like the, the sky split or the ceiling opened up and God stood right here and he says, North Kent Chapel, I'm gonna give you an option. Do you want the person of Christ here this morning or would you rather have the person of the Holy Spirit? All of us, especially if you're a Christ follower, you go, oh my gosh, just give me Jesus, Right? Because, like, we're a little looking forward to heaven, and, like, won't that be great when, like, we get to see him finally face-to-face, this Jesus that we read about, that we worship, that we sing to. Won't it be great when we see his face, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's actually to your advantage that I go away and you have the Holy Spirit. That, that's baffling to me. I'm going, well, what's that about? More on that in just a bit. But something else we've got to see here, and this is... Kind of a, it's going to feel like a little theological pull-off, but I want you to follow me for a minute. When Jesus thinks about our world, he thinks about our world in two groups of people. And they come up right here in this text. The first group he calls the world. Okay, the world. And the other group is called you or the church or the disciples is who he's talking about here. So there's the world and there's the church. When God's word, especially in the New Testament, uses the word the world, he doesn't mean the physical world, usually. It doesn't mean like mountains and rocks and grass and sky and flowers and all that stuff. That's not usually what he's talking about. Usually in the New Testament, the phrase the world means those who live according to the natural way of man apart from God. Okay? These are people, my life was there, and so is everybody's life in this room, whether you know Jesus or not. There was a point where this was true of you. You lived like a car without a steering wheel and the foot mashed on the gas all the way to the floor, just kind of doing this. Life on your own terms. And it isn't until we realize how frustrating that is that we go, there's something wrong. (laughs) That's what he means by the world. People who do not live under the authority of God. Now to the world, those who don't know Jesus, the Holy Spirit has a very distinct function. He says it right there in verse eight. He says he will convict the world. Well, that's not a very rosy picture. I don't know if I like that one. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit's job to someone who doesn't know Jesus yet is to convict them of sin. Not a very popular topic, but God's word says it, so we're going to talk about it. This is where the Holy Spirit starts his work in the lives of unbelievers. That's my story where you have this inner sense of wrongness, this inner sense of ought not to be-ness, right? Book of Ecclesiastes would put it like this, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And so what that means is if you're introspective enough, you can look inside and go, there's something wrong around here. 
We only know the goodness of God by how much we miss it. Like we can almost grasp it, but nothing is fulfilling, right? And then when you really get down to it and you go, gosh, maybe I'm a part of the problem. Uh Uh-oh. That's the Holy Spirit working in the lives of unbelievers. That's my story. There was a spot in my life when I realized there was something wrong in the world and I am actually contributing to it. Now what do I do? We're going to get to that. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, puts it like this. I'm just going to read this to you because he says it beautifully. He says, The Holy Spirit comes not to make sinners comfortable in their sins, but to cause them to grieve over them. He comes to wound so that no human balm can heal. Oh, gosh, that's a good word. He comes to kill so that no earthly power can make us live. Get near a real sinner, a man who mourns in his inmost soul that he is so, and you will find one who will welcome the Savior. The gospel to him will be as cold water to a thirsty soul. Isn't that beautiful? I know a number of you have had that in your story. Some of you, that's not you yet. You're still checking out Jesus. You're not desperate enough for him yet. I pray that you would be. The Holy Spirit has not dislodged your sin from your heart because you love it. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world, but then the Holy Spirit also guides the church. Guide, now that literally means to show the way, to blight the way, to be the path. And it's right there in the text. He says, he will glorify me. So who is the Holy Spirit lighting? Who is he making much of? Who is he showing us? Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to amplify what Jesus has already said, to amplify the person and work of Jesus. Think about this for a minute. Believers ought to live our lives in such dependence on the Holy Spirit that atheists doubt their unbelief. You know why churches get off the rails? Christians, even, you know, individual Christians, churches, denominations, whatever, you know why they get off the rails and they drift and they invent their own truth and give in to false teaching? Because they lose sight of two things. They lose sight of what Jesus has already said to us in his word, and then they replace the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their lives with their own leadership, and so they make up their own truth. And so Jesus says right here, the Holy Spirit is here to guide you. That's true of you if you're a Christian. If you're not, you don't know what that feels like yet. It's a wonderful thing. But guys, let's, I don't want to hang here for too much longer, but it should sober us to think that you can be a successful growing church, you can be a successful Christian, depending on how you define success, you can be outwardly successful without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Makes you want to redefine success a little bit, doesn't it? How you doing? (laughs) This is really, really hard. So, here's where we've got to go next. I said this morning is just going to kind of be a basic sketch. We're going to have to keep things kind of high level. The next three weeks are going to go a little bit deeper. So with the text under us now, I want to sketch out four basic principles. So for you note takers, here you go. You're going to get four points. We did this a little while ago when we talked about spiritual warfare. We had eight tactics you need to understand with spiritual warfare. And a lot of you said that that was really helpful for you just to understand kind of what God's word says about this. And so we want to do that again this morning. And so here's four things you need to know about the Holy Spirit. Principle number one, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. (laughs) 
I'm a Star Wars fan. I love it. But the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. If you get nothing else out of this morning, you've got to understand this. He's not the force. He is a person. He isn't the wind. He isn't a feeling. He isn't an impression in your gut. He's not a vision you get in your head. He's not a whisper that you hear or a sign that you see. He isn't any of those things. He's a person. And this is very important because our world is being increasingly influenced by an incredibly subjective and self-centered spirituality. Here's what I mean. Tell me if you've ever heard this. Well, I mean, it seems right to me. As if I'm really that smart. (laughs) I've done the research. Here's what it says. Or, look, you be you. Okay, all of those statements are deeply problematic. Why? Because they start with who? Me. And they end with who? Me. And they rest on whose authority? Mine. And the point of the gospel is I need someone to rescue me from me. I don't need more of me. I need less of it. I'm part of the problem. So here's why this is so important for a 2021 world. There is too much at stake to be led by a force. Our world is too dark to be led by a feeling. I want to be led by a person, a person who knows me, a person who is wise, a person who understands what Jesus says and wants to apply it to my heart and show me where I'm off course and can redirect me. I need that, even if I don't initially like what it might mean. So we should take great comfort in the fact that Jesus loves you enough to send you the person of the Holy Spirit to lead you. Like, yeah, guys, look, it's 2021. We have all been dropped into the wilderness of crazy. But the person of the Holy Spirit is better than a compass and a map. This is a guide to walk alongside of you. Or if you're trying to figure out what to do in a kitchen because you can't figure it out. It's been the last week of my life. (laughs) This is like a master chef right alongside of you rather than just a cookbook. Holy Spirit is a person, not a force, which leads right to the second principle. Principle number two, the Holy Spirit is a co-eternal, co-equal member of the Trinity. So now we're going to get into some little heavy theology, so just buckle up for a minute. The Holy Spirit is not a creation of God the Father or a creation of God the Son. He was there in Genesis 1 because he is a co-equal, co-eternal member of the Trinity. Now, here's the thing. You're going to go, whoa, 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 Trinity, I don't understand that. Three persons, one God. Sounds like three gods with like an identity complex. Help me sort this thing out, okay? So um, on my Facebook, I posted a little while ago this week, this great little cartoon of people trying to make sense of this. Um, It's these two guys that are talking to St. Patrick as he tries to share the concept of the Trinity with Irish peasants. It's kind of funny. You can go check that out. But here's the point. If you've ever taught Vacation Bible School, or if you have any kids and you're trying to raise them in the faith, probably one of the first questions is like, well, hey, are there three gods or one God? Help me make sense of this. So here's my answer. I don't know. Sorry. Every other analogy to try and make sense of the Trinity falls flat. You've got like the egg, the apple, the water. Like I've heard them all. You maybe have shared them. All those analogies fall flat. And they they fall flat for one very important reason. Because I am not God. And so I can't understand him. 
Now, philosophers and religious skeptics like to bristle at that and say, well, that's a very convenient out. And my response back to that is like, well, I'm actually okay worshiping a God I don't understand because if I did understand him, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. So I'm good with that. That doesn't really scare me too much. But as it relates to the Holy Spirit, we need to know that he is co-eternal, co-equal, member of the Trinity. Here's why this is important for us today. If you're in this room and you have a relationship with Jesus, which is not everybody in this room, I'm not that naive, If you have a relationship with Jesus and you've given your life to him, then you have the eternal God residing in you. That is a massive theological point. Here's why that matters. The power to conquer sin in your life doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit within you. The power to love the unlovable people around you doesn't come from you. It comes from the Holy Spirit within you. The reflex to be gracious to those with whom you disagree. Hello, 2020. The reflex to be gracious to those with whom you disagree. That's hard for you. It's because it's not supposed to come from you. It's supposed to come from the Holy Spirit inside of you. So it sort of begs the question, doesn't it? Why do so many Christians live defeated, unloving, and ungracious lives? It's not that hard to answer. We are living in our own strength. (laughs) We're not living in dependence. We value our independence, right? No. You are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit for anything good that comes out of your life. We are an unplugged lamp wondering why the room around us is so dark. So if you're living hopeless day after hopeless day, if you're living like everything is out of control in the world, if you're acting like everyone who doesn't agree with you is an enemy that you should hate, those are probably indicators that you are living life on your own strength. So let's put this back into its cultural context. If you told first century Jewish believers, like these 11 guys who are still in the upper room, if you told them that the same God who freed them from Egyptian oppression, the same God who split the Red Sea and then led them as a pillar of fire through the desert would now be in them, after they undropped their jaws, they would have said, well, we want to live all of our lives around him. I don't give a rip about my opinion. Let's find out what he has to say. It's so interesting, if you read the book of Acts, which the book of Acts in the Bible, it follows the Gospels, it's this history of the early church. It tells all the stories of how the church got its start. It's so fascinating, if you read the book of Acts, how prominently and how strongly the Holy Spirit features in the church's decision-making and thinking and discipleship. It's almost odd for so many of us. We're going to talk more about how do we do this in the coming weeks, but for now, just know that the Holy Spirit is a co-equal, co-eternal member of the Trinity. Principle number three. The Holy Spirit's leadership is always consistent with God's word. So I want to illustrate this so that you know what I mean. So um, in another ministry context, not here, I was meeting with a guy whose marriage was imploding. This was several years ago. And um, like there was nothing going on. Massive disconnect between he and his wife. Um, they both claim to be Christians, and it's the, the typical stuff. Like, we're fighting about money. There's no intimacy. Like, there's no connection. Uh, we don't date anymore. And he's talking to me about all this, and he says, like, I don't even know, like, what's going on, and I just I kind of want to know what you think about that. Okay, well, let's keep talking. And so as we talk, 
he made a comment. He says, well, actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like, there's this lady at work who's a Christian, and she really has taken sympathy with kind of the way I'm feeling. You see where this is going. And I said, well, tell me about that. And he goes, well, I've prayed about it, and I really feel like God is leading me to leave my wife so that I can have a relationship with this person. Because she gets me, and she's in the Word, and she prays. And my wife, like, we're just distant, and we're disconnected. And I don't know what to do about that, but I really feel like this is the route to go. Now, before I tell you what I told him, you need to know that while it is never God's intention, there are biblical grounds for divorce, and that is a separate sermon for another day. I'm not going to get into that. If you're curious about it, email me. I would love to chat with you about that. But those biblical criteria were not met here in this case. So here's what I said to him. I said, I don't deny that you have that feeling. It sounds really painful. It sounds like your marriage is really hard. Marriage is supposed to be hard, right? Don't raise your hand because <laughs> you're probably sitting next to somebody who is a little indicting. And um, I said, but here's the thing. Like, whatever you're listening to that's guiding you to make that decision is not God. How do I know that? Because Jesus says that you should actually run not from, you should run toward your wife. And God never contradicts himself. Now, I share that story not to shame him or to exert like some weird spiritual authority here or whatever. And I don't say that to silence your story because maybe you're wrestling with that stuff this morning because this is the world, right? We have these things in our lives. But I share that story for one reason. Everybody needs guidance. I do. Guys, if we could walk together through the course of a week, I'd love to show you how many times I put my head in my hands and I go, God, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, God. And it could be family-related. It could be marriage-related. It could be work-related. It could be just being a man in this world. And I go, God, what do I do? Ugh, I don't know what to do. Will you show me what's going on? We all need directions. But here's the thing. Needing direction is not the problem. What matters most is where you go to get it. You're going to go with your gut? Some article you read on Facebook? Come on. You need to go with what you want to be true or what seems to be true? Or do you know how to open the source of truth and actually use this thing? Not to meditate and sit and just be holy in our quiet time in the morning, but actually run to the God who wrote this book. You see why biblicism in the Bible is such a big deal for us as a church? Because it's all right here, absolutely all of it. No problem I can experience in this world is outside of this book. It's all here. We are human. We are needful. We are deficient. We are imperfect. We are incapable. We are incomplete. There should be a sign over every one of our heads that says, handle with care. <laughs> and part of what I want us to see this morning is that the Holy Spirit, coupled with God's word, is Jesus' way as the loving, gentle, wise shepherd saying, here, you're not alone. I've left my word for you to read and my spirit for you to hear, and they will always be in harmony with each other. Saying to yourself, God told me, doesn't override what he's already said. That's why biblical literacy is such a big deal. So that's principle number three. Sorry, I get a little fired up about that one. I've just, to be candid, I've seen too much pain around that one. Holy Spirit's leadership is always consistent with God's word. Principle number four, and with this one we'll close. 
When it comes to spiritual growth, the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. This comes right out of John 16. When the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and the Holy Spirit guides the church in truth, that's what I mean by spiritual growth. Okay? Here's why this is an important point for us to remember. You look at a sinful world. How does a sinful world get better? The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, not me. It's not my job. I can't do it. When it comes to the real stuff of spiritual transformation, the Holy Spirit runs the show. This is especially true when I talk about evangelism or sharing the good news of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't talk about sin. It doesn't mean we don't use the word sin. It doesn't mean we downplay the horrible effects of sin. But what it absolutely does mean is that when lives are changed and when I want to see a lost person cross the bridge from death to life, that it isn't my ability to arm wrestle them into the kingdom that changes anybody's heart. The Holy Spirit does that. He does what I cannot do. Here's what this should do for us. If you're in this room and you're a Christian and you have a lost person that you care about or several people that are making a mess of their lives and you care about them and you love them and I hope you do, this should have an effect on us. This should prompt us to pray more fervently and share our hope more freely. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of the spiritually blind and soften the hearts of the spiritually callous. And then when you share your hope, share freely. Because the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting, not you. It's not up to you to convince anybody. Oh, gosh, that's such a freeing thought. Really because of where it leads next. Consider this. The Holy Spirit is already at work in the lives of those you love. Think about that for a minute. If you're in here this morning and you follow Jesus, think of a lost person that you know, that you're brokenhearted for, that you pray for. Hopefully one comes to mind. And not as a project for you to fix, but as somebody that you love. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is probably already at work in their life. And if he's not yet, and if you don't see that yet, pray, 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 pray. This is our job as Christ followers, and not to convince anybody, it's to speak the truth. God's already tilling up the ground. He's already turning things over. And our job is to say, okay, Spirit, show me where you want me to go and tell me what you want me to say. And that's really comforting for me because I'm not called to be brilliant, I'm just called to be faithful. <laughs> Principle number four, when it comes to spiritual growth, the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. And so that's where we're gonna pick things up next week. Um, we've got to wrap up because I'm already over time. But as we close, I want to I just quickly talk to two groups of people in this room. I want to talk to those of you that are Christians, those of you that are followers of Christ, and you're seeking him. You're putting your life under his authority every day. You're trying to do that as best you can. I want to invite you to ask a question. Consider what practical difference is the Holy Spirit making in your life? Could you live the life that you're living without dependence on the Holy Spirit? Consider what risks you're avoiding and what joys you're missing. And my word for you is Jesus gave you the Holy Spirit. Don't be the light that's unplugged in a dark room. Second group I want to talk to this morning is if you don't know Jesus yet, and maybe, you know, here we just had Easter and it was great here at North Canton Chapel and maybe this is like your second week here and you're brand new to Jesus and you're like, I don't know, I'm just trying to do the best I can and I'm trying to find my way to faith and I don't know what any of this means. Let me just invite you 
Consider the idea that you could trade the frustrated life on your own terms for the satisfying life on Jesus' terms. It's always available to you. Jesus wants you to have peace. In a restless, churning, whitewater world, Jesus wants you to have peace. It's always available to you. Talk to the person who brought you. Email me. Email one of our staff. Don't leave without making clear, making sure that you know where you stand with Jesus. There's no better thing you could get out of this life than reconciliation with a holy God. Dependence is not comfortable, whether it's laundry or something else. Dependence is not comfortable because it's scary and it always involves trust. Another word for that is faith. Faith rarely comes easy, but it's always available to those who ask. Let me pray. Father, when we address you, I know that even when we pray, you only hear us because we are made new in the power of your Holy Spirit. And he translates my bumbling words. He intercedes for me so that my words and the words that I can't even say, the feelings that don't even find words, that that all makes sense to you somehow in your grace and in your care. So we just say thank you, thank you, thank you. God, cause us to reflect on what we need to do. And God, I pray that even in that moment, we recognize everything that you've already done. Give us courage. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.